Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I've uh, been uh, preaching for a couple of weeks now on the Our Father, and I just want to continue with that. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about... Um, your will be done. It says in Matthew 6 verse 9 and 10, this then is how you should pray. Uh, And remember I said, it's interesting to note that Jesus says, uh, pray in this way, not pray these words. Okay? In other words, that our Father is not intended to be a prayer that's just sort of recited like a parrot. It's supposed to be um, a model prayer of a way, a general way in which we should pray. So we can see all these phrases as sort of topical headings that we can then fill in as we pray to the Lord. And um, I highly recommend you, you try that. And uh, I think you'll find that it, it'll be hard to, just pray, for, to pray just for 10 or 15 minutes if you do that. So it says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to focus on that phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven this morning. Um, now, the, probably the most common question that I get as a pastor uh, when I see people is, what's the will of God for my life? <laughs> and I'm sure some of you sort of wonder about that as well from time to time. Um, and it's not just um, sort of a question that you ask and then it gets answered and then it's over. It's, it's sort of a continuous question, isn't it? What's God's will for our lives? Because, uh, you know, for instance, um, three years ago, uh, things sort of happened in such a way, uh, another pastor was actually going to come up and pastor this church, but things didn't work out that way. And on very short notice, Rochelle and I were asked to come. And uh, Pastor Heinrich, who was pastoring here at the time, came to us and said, listen here, uh, would you guys consider please... Um, you know, going up and pastoring the, the congregation in, 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 in Joburg. Um, and it was completely out of the blue, completely unexpected. We weren't prepared at all. Um, and, I mean, you guys have lived in Joburg for a while. You know Joburg's reputation for traffic <laughs> and, and crime and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, down in the Cape, uh, Joburg is known as Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. So we were like, uh, okay, God. <laughs> But it's amazing that very next morning, I couldn't sleep around 3 o'clock, just after 3, and I I got up, went to the kitchen, and asked God just to speak to me and say, Lord, what what do you want me to do? Uh, What's your will (laughs) for this situation? And God took me to the book of Haggai, on which uh, Pastor Heinrich preached uh, last Sunday morning. And from that book, in two places, he said, I want you to go, and I want you to continue building uh, on the foundation that has been laid, and I will bless you. You know, basically in, in those words. Now, sometimes God speaks to us very clearly like that. And it was, as soon as God said that to me, I knew we must go. This is what God has called me. This is the will of God. And it was very easy for me. Yes, Joburg, here we come. We're going to go. Um, of course, the Lord didn't speak to my wife, so it was a little bit more difficult for her. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or as I sometimes tell my wife, the Lord did speak to her through me. <laughs> but sometimes it's not that clear. Sometimes it's not that clear. What about, 
Lord, what is your will about whom I should marry? And, and, and sometimes God, you know, speaks with an audible voice from heaven, you know, and, and makes it very clear, but sometimes he doesn't. I mean, as clearly as God spoke to me when we came to Joburg, God did not speak to me clearly about marrying Rochelle. He didn't. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a word. You know, I, I asked the Lord, obviously. I mean, we prayed and fasted and, you know, did the whole nine yards. Um, but God didn't give me a clear word. And, and then I said, Lord, but, you know, what's your will in this situation? You know, is, is Rochelle the right one for me? Am I the right one for her? Do you want me to marry her? And all that God said is, you decide. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that was what God wanted. God wanted me to make a decision. And I trust I made the right decision. <laughs> I believe I did. But in that case, there wasn't as clear word as, as you know, with coming here and this, you know, do this. Or, you know, which job to take? You know, sometimes the most difficult decisions are not decisions where there's a clear right and wrong, but decisions where there are a couple of good options, which are all sort of equally good. So, you know... Seeking God's will, and I, I, I don't think this sort of choosing between different good options is primarily what God has in mind, uh, what Jesus has in mind with this prayer when he says, your will be done. Um, what, what Jesus means here is, he says, let your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. And, and this implies that um, even though we cannot miss God's will, it, well, even, even though God's will cannot be missed in heaven, it can be missed on earth. It can be missed on earth. It's, it's being done perfectly in heaven, but it's not being done perfectly on earth. Now, think about that. Let's just... Just want you to feel that tension between what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven. There's a tension there. It's very different. There's a contrast there. Okay? Now, in heaven, there's no sin. In other words, there's no murder. I mean, we live in a country where the murder stats are unfortunately very high. Very high, alarmingly high. But there is a place where there's no murder in heaven. Um, in heaven, there's no rape. In heaven, there's no theft. I mean, who of you have had something stolen from you? Just put up your hand quickly. Look around you. Just, just hold up your hand. Look around you. Most of us, right, have had something stolen from us. How does it make you feel when something steals, someone steals something that belongs to you? You get upset, right? It's not lacquer. Obviously, it depends on what's being stolen, you know. Some things are worse than others. Rochelle and I had a car stolen. That was not nice. You know, you come out to the parking lot, and you get to the place where you park the car, and it's not there, and you think, hmm, am I remembering correctly? Did I park the car here, you know, or did I park it somewhere else and just sort of, and you start looking around the parking lot, and it's not there, and it's like, Dude, where's my car? You know? (laughs) 
and, and, and it, it doesn't feel good. It's, it, there's that, that sinking feeling, that, that, that feeling of anger and, uh, you know, that, that sort of knot in your stomach. Guess what? You'll never feel that feeling in heaven because nothing will ever be stolen from you in heaven. Um, there's no lying in heaven. You know, with, with all the lying that's going on in politics today, um, we tend to sometimes think, no, lying is a small sin. Murder, rape, those are big sins. But lying is a small sin. You can do a lot of damage with lying. In fact, in some cases, you can do more damage than with many other sins. In fact, with most other sins. I mean, look at how much money is being stolen through lying in South Africa. Um, look at how many people are suffering because of it. Last, last time I, I, I shared on Your Kingdom Come, I mentioned that in one calendar year, we, there, there's about 25 billion rand plus being stolen or mismanaged by government. Now think of all the good that could and should be done with that money and isn't being done with that money. Think about all the people that are suffering, going hungry, living on the street, not having their needs met, which, and needs that could have been met with that money. That's not going to happen in heaven. There's going to be no lying in heaven. There's going to be no oppression in heaven. None of those bad things, none of those things that make our lives hard, that hurt us, that damage us, that make us upset, that make us sad and depressed, none of those things are going to be in heaven. Think about this. There's going to be no disappointment in heaven. Have you ever been disappointed? Many times, right? If you're the average human being, you've been disappointed many times in this life. You're never going to feel that feeling in heaven. It's not going to exist. not going to be there. No disappointments in heaven. No disappointments whatsoever. No, um, no disease. You're never going to get sick. No one you know is ever going to get sick. No depression. You're never going to feel bad. Every tear is going to be wiped away. It'd be, as Eric Clapton sings, no tears in heaven. No tears in heaven. And no death. No death. And it makes us want to say, well, why can't earth be a bit more like heaven, right? <laughs> well, that's what this prayer is about. This prayer is all about praying into that contrast, that gap between heaven and earth and saying, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. Let your will be done. So, um, interesting thing about prayer is that um, prayer not only causes us to participate in God's will, praying for God's will doesn't only cause us to participate in God's will because we, in a sense, praying it into being and God uses our prayers to, to accomplish his will, but it also prepares us for God's will when he does come to pass. If you prayed for God's will, then when God's will happens, you're ready for it. You're ready to receive it. You have the right heart. So, I'm just going to look at three things. Um, firstly, God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. Secondly, it can't be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thirdly, it has been done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, those sound contrasting, I know. 
bear with me. It'll make sense in a moment. So firstly, let's uh, uh, look at the first one. God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why should God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, two main reasons. And I just want to um, put up two scriptures here from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 48 verse 17 to 18 says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would be like, uh, have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you. God teaches us, and, and, and he, um, he, he directs us in the way that we should go. And if we go in that way, we will have peace. We will have well-being. In other words, doing God's will produces our greatest good. Doing God's will produces our greatest good. But it doesn't only produce our greatest good. It simultaneously produces God's greatest glory. And that's the other reason why we want God's will done on on earth as it is in heaven in isaiah 48 verse 10 to 11 it says behold i have refined you but not as silver i've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake i do it for how should my name be profaned my glory i will not give to another so god says i change you in such a way that you can and want to do my glory so that i want to do my will so that my name can be glorified in other words When we're praying, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for everyone's greatest good and for God's greatest glory. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're asking for. Now, that begs the question. We we said now, okay, why should God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? But that begs the question, how is God's will being done in heaven? Have you ever thought about that? How is God's will being done in heaven? Now, obviously, you can sum it up by saying it's being done perfectly. It's being done perfectly. But let's, let's break that down a bit. Firstly, God's will is actually being done. Now, I'm not going to read the parable, but in uh, Matthew 21, verse, I think from about verse 29 to 31, Jesus tells this parable about two sons. The father has two sons. He comes to the first and he says, go and work in, in the vineyard today. And the son says, I won't. But then after his father leaves, he actually goes and he works in the vineyard. And goes to the second son and says the same. You know, go and work in the vineyard. And he says, I go, father. But then he doesn't go. Now, in heaven, every response is, I will go. And then they do go. God's will is being done. is actually being done. Not only saying it's going to be done, but it's actually being done. Secondly, it's being done fully. Remember, some of you might know the story of King Saul. Um, he's told by, by God through the prophet Samuel to go to the Amalekites. Um, and the Amalekites were a very evil nation. Um, I mean, one of the things that they did was the whole idea of the golden calf, Molech, which was one of the gods of that time. This golden calf um, comes from, amongst others, the Amalekites. Uh, and what they did was they made Molech this golden calf, it was a, a hollowed-out um, big golden calf, and then inside of it they made a fire, so it became like a furnace. So the metal obviously became very hot, and it had this, apparently this protruding bottom lip, and then they would bring their little infants and put them on the searing hot 
bottom lip, and then the, obviously the child would be consumed within seconds. Um, sort of an early form of infanticide or abortion, you know. But terrible. And, and, and apparently, you know, sorry for being so graphic, but, you know, the, the, the face, as the, as the moisture gets removed from, from the body, the face sort of pulls back in the smile of, of worship, according to them. Terrible. I mean, I, I'm mentioning that to show you how terrible this was, and this had been going on for generations. So that when God says, go and totally wipe out this culture, we understand what God is telling the Israelites to wipe out. It's a, it's a culture that has gone beyond the point, point of no return, beyond redemption. So he says to, 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 through Samuel to, to King Saul, the first king of Israel, go and completely wipe out the entire civilization so that nothing of it remains and so that it cannot contaminate the Israelites. And what, what Saul does is he, he, he does most of it. He, he, he destroys the cities, um, kills the people, destroys most of the animals, but keeps the best. And then Samuel the prophet comes and, and, and you know, Saul confidently announced, I have done the will of the Lord. And Samuel says those immortal words, what then is this bleating I hear in my ears? <laughs> and then he tries to, you know, blame the people. Oh, it's the people. They decided, that, you know, they wanted to keep the best of the animals, you know, so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord, you know, he sort of puts a little religious spin on it. But that day, as Samuel walks away, Saul sort of grabs at his cloak and, and, and a part of Samuel's cloak is torn off and, and, and Samuel says to, to King Saul, as that corner of my cloak has been torn off, so the kingdom has been torn away from you. In other words, partial obedience is not obedience. And there's a lot of partial obedience on earth, which is not obedient. And there's a lot of partial obedience in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves. I know this because I'm guilty of it. And I don't think I'm all that much worse than the rest of you. <laughs> I think we, we're all pretty much the same, right? But in heaven, God's will is done fully, not partially. Not partially. Secondly, it's done consistently. Let's move from the first king of Israel to the second king, David. He was a lot better, but also not. <laughs> I mean, when it came to worshiping God and fighting for God's people, I mean, he was a champion. He did so many great things. But he ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba, having a husband assassinated, um, Going, sort of starting to go the way of the world and having his um, armies numbered, like the, you know, so they could compare them to the armies of the other nations around him. And all of those things brought great destruction and great heartache. They were serious sins. So, so here you have a man who was really a great man of God, a man after God's own heart. And most of what he did was great. It wasn't only average, it wasn't only acceptable, it was great. It was amazing. Yet even he didn't consistently do the will of the Lord. See, in heaven, God's will is not only going to be done some of the time or most of the time. It's all of God's will is going to be done all of the time or is done all of the time. It's done consistently. God's will is done consistently. Uh, another one, God's will is done intentionally in heaven. There are so many people on earth who do, do God's will accidentally. 
right? So many people who don't believe in God, believe in the Bible, love their wives or love their husbands. But they don't do it to be obedient to God. You know, they say even a broken clock is right twice a day. Even a broken clock gives the right time twice a day. But that doesn't mean the clock is working. And likewise, just because we obey God accidentally doesn't mean we're actually obeying God. It's just sort of, oops, you know, it happened, you know. But in heaven, God's will is not only being done, but it's being done intentionally all the time. It's also done immediately. You see, so often God talks to us and he says, I want you to do this, and we say, Lord, I'll pray about it, (laughs) and I'll come back to you, (laughs) right? Don't we sometimes say that? (laughs) Okay, to be fair, sometimes we're not sure the Lord is speaking to us, and then it's fine to go and seek counsel and to pray about it and to actually make sure, Lord, is this you speaking to me? uh, I think that's a good good practice. But, But the reality is even when we are sure sometimes that God is speaking to us, we don't always immediately do it. We sort of delayed. We procrastinate. Um, I saw a quote by uh, Pablo Picasso, the famous painter. He said, "Don't, don't leave until tomorrow. uh, What? What? Don't leave until tomorrow anything that you're not willing to um, die having left undone. When you, when you, you know, when you need to do something and you can do it, do it." Um, but the, the reality is on earth that doesn't happen. On earth, often we know God's will and then we delay it. We don't, even when we do obey, it's like maybe a few months or even a few years later. Um, also, God's, a, a good example of this, sorry, is found in Numbers 14. For those of you who want to go and look it up, I'm not going to read it. But it's where the Israelites come to the border of the promised land for the first time. And... Um, they send out the spies, they're in the promised land, 40 days, come back. Ten of the 12 spies bring back a bad report. Joshua and Caleb bring back a good report. They say, it's a, yeah, they are giants, but it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And if the Lord is with us, we'll conquer them. But the people believe the bad report, and they say, no, even though God had promised this land to them, that's why it's called the promised land, <laughs> God brought them for the very purpose, you know, to, to the edge of the promised land, to give it to them what is promised to them, they... They refuse to enter in, and in fact, they want to kill Moses and Aaron and pick new leaders and go back to Egypt. Can you believe it? God gets very angry. God's judgment comes down. It becomes clear that God's not happy with the situation. And, and then, after God had spoken his judgment, they say, and said, you're going to wander 40 years in the desert, one year for each day that the spies were in the promised land. And this whole generation who refused to receive my promise, to believe my promise, and to, to, to do my will will die out in the wilderness. Quite hard. All of a sudden, they turn around and say, oh, no, no, we're sorry, we've sinned. We'll go now and occupy the promised land. <laughs> and Moses is like, sorry, guys, that offer expired. <laughs> you had to obey it immediately. And that whole generation passed away in the wilderness. Another thing is, in heaven, God's will is being done willingly. You see, you can do God's will, but not do it because you want to. But do it because you have to. It's like the the, the kid, his dad said to him, sit down. And he sits down and thinks to himself, in my heart, I'm still standing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we all know that. We're all that kids sometimes, right? In my heart, I'm still standing, you know. Um, and we do God's will, but we don't do it willingly. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? In heaven, God's will is also being done joyfully. You see, so often, even when we do know God's will, and we do do God's will, even when we do it immediately, we don't always do it joyfully. See, in uh, Corinthians, I think 2 Corinthians, God says, uh, Paul says, God loves a joyful giver. You see, you can give to God like we did this morning in the offering. You can give to God, but without any joy. Then you're obeying God, but it's a joyless obedience. That is not, let's be honest, full obedience, right? Also, God's will in heaven is being done gratefully, not resentfully. Because we understand, they understand in heaven that God's will is what's best for them. We don't always understand that. So that when we do God's will, we're not always grateful for the privilege we have of obeying God, serving God, and doing His will. Now, why I mention all of those is simply to show you the problem. God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the reality is God's will can't be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who of us can fully, consistently, immediately, joyfully, <laughs> willingly, gratefully, etc., etc., do God's will all the time? All of God's will all the time. None of us does that. None of us does that. Um, Let's look at it in a different way. We're praying, Lord, your will be done. But before you can do God's will, you've got to desire God's will. Right? But before you can desire God's will, you've got to discern God's will. So there are these three steps. Discern God's will, desire God's will, do God's will. And at every one of those steps, we falter. And we fail as human beings. We don't always discern God's will. So then we can't desire to do it. Even when we do, you know, consistently discern God's will, we don't consistently desire it and therefore do it. And even when we, when we discern it and desire it, we don't always do it. We don't always do it. So, um, let's take that consistency. We must do God's will consistently because God's will is being done in, consistently in heaven so it must be done consistently on earth. So often what ends up happening is we do God's will inconsistently because we do those parts of God's will that we like and agree with. Right? Whenever God's will is agreeable to me, then I do it. But if I'm only obeying God when God's will agrees with my will, am I really obeying God or am I obeying myself? I'm obeying myself, actually. Um, now, the reality is that um, the problem here is both in the discerning and the desiring, we have problems. 
Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, let me just bring it up quickly, Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now to a perfect being, a sinless being, who have, has higher thoughts and higher ways, those, his will might seem perfect. But to lower beings like us who have lower thoughts and lower ways, sinful beings, that sinless, perfect way and perfect will might sometimes not seem so good. There's this scene um, in this movie my kids watch, Tangled. Have you seen that that, um, Disney movie, Tangled? Um, Strange movie, but there's, there's this one scene that I really like in this little pub. It's this wild pub, this, 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 all these nasty, you know, unsavory characters in the pub, you know, brigands and all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, they grab this, what's his name, Flynn Ridinger or something like that, you know, and they're sort of wanting to beat him up. And the, the, this, this lady, uh, whatever her name, Rapunzel, that's right, um, she, wants, she needs him as a guy to take her to the palace to go and see the lights. Every day, every year on her birthday, these lights, these lanterns go up. She just wants to see that. That's her dream. And um, so, you know, they're going to beat this guy up. And, and, you know, she's desperate because he's a guide, you know. So she smacks this one brigand, this big guy, you know. And um, he sort of stops. Everyone stops. And he turns around. He walks to her. and And she says, you know, haven't you guys ever had a dream? And he said, I, have a dream. I had a dream once. And all of them start singing and talking about their dreams and so on. Even, even Flynn Ridinger, you know, about his dream to go to an island and have, you know, no one to bother him but everything that he wants. And um, in the end, as they slip away, the Rapunzel and, and this Flynn guy, uh, this brigand, this rough brigand guy sort of shouts over the counter as they're disappearing through the trapdoor, good luck with your dream. And Flynn says, thank you. And he says to him, not your dream, your dream sucks. <laughs> I was talking to the lady. <laughs> your dream sucks. Now sometimes we're like that with God. God, your will sucks. <laughs> right? Sometimes when we experience God's will, we're not happy with it. Sorry, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's the truth. In our hearts, we might not always say it out loud like that brigand, but we, in our hearts sometimes we think, Lord, your will sucks. <laughs> your plan sucks. Your dream for my, my dream for my life is better than your dream for my life, God. Anyone ever feel like, don't put up your hand, don't put up your hand. <laughs> and because of that, we can't always discern God's will because we don't always know what's best for us. In other words... When we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not praying, God, answer all my prayers. We're in fact praying, God, only answer those prayers that are in line with your will. Ignore those prayers that aren't. In other words, in order to have God's will done in our lives, he must answer some of our prayers, but override other prayers, because we don't always pray for the right things. Because we don't always discern God's will. But then also, another problem is we don't desire God's will. And it's the problem, one of probably the major problems of our modern times, but also arguably the major problem of all of human history. It's it's a problem which... um, 
a guy called uh, Timothy Keller calls the sovereign self. The sovereign self. What is that? We want to rule our own lives. We don't want to be ruled. We want absolute freedom. And absolute freedom, I mean, freedom is one of our highest values, right? One of our very highest values is, is freedom um, as modern people. Um, I mean, one way in which you can see this is, um, sorry, I'm making a lot of sort of um, references to media and stuff, <laughs> but bear with me. I think this just is a symptom. Who of you have ever heard that song, Let It Go, from, from the movie Frozen? You can see I'm quoting a lot of animations because I have kids, you know. When you, when you become a parent, you'll understand, you know. You're going to watch those animations and you're going to know them back to front. But um, it's a story about this princess called Elsa who has this magical power, supposedly, um, but she has to hide it because it's scary. She can sort of manipulate ice and snow and all kinds of stuff. And, and she has to wear gloves the whole time and, and what have you. So, um, so she, she sings, you know, the wind's howling like a, a swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you've always, uh, you always um, have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. And then she sings, let it go, let it go. Um, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And then she sings, it's funny how a little distance makes everything seem small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. Now, often when we do God's will, often when we do do God's will, whether we, you know, even when we're religious sometimes, we do it for the wrong reasons. We do it out of fear, like Elsa, or pride. I was doing the right thing for the wrong reason. That's very common. Um, and then it goes on... Uh, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through freedom. Can you see? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That little phrase summarizes so much of the attitude, the spirit of this world. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm only free if there's no right, no wrong, and no rules for me. That's, our, that's the, the, the worldly definition of of freedom, the secular definition. Let it go, let it go. I'm one with the wind and sky. Let it go, let it go. I'll never, you'll never see me cry. Here I stand. Can I? Can't read the rest. But anyway, you get the point. The point is that attitude represented in that song is common in our society. Let it go. The song was released in 2013, and on on YouTube. And already it's had 590 million views. The next year, the um, song started winning Emmys. Uh, you know, what, what they called the... Um, not Anyway, the, the, the music awards, Grammys and stuff. Uh, in the next year, 2014 alone, it sold almost 11 million copies. Just the song, not, not the video. Um, then in 2014, they also released a sing-along version on YouTube, which up to now has had about 1.2 billion views. 
So on YouTube alone, 1.8 odd billion. And that's just the official Disney releases. I mean, that's not counting all the others. They reckon it's 3 billion plus views all in all that the song has had. Why is it so popular? I'll tell you why it's so popular. It's because that attitude of the song, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, resonates, resonates with the freedom that people long for. It resonates with the sovereign self that says, I don't want to be the victim of everyone, anyone else's will for my life. I don't want to be the victim, ultimately, even of God's will for my life. I want to be completely free. In fact, most euros today, if you look in popular culture, media, literature, and so on, is the euro who stands up and they, they, they have the courage to be themselves despite the pressure of society, despite norms of right and wrong. No, no, no. I'm going to decide who I am. Freedom to decide my being. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I'm going to decide what's what's true. Freedom to determine my own beliefs. I'm going to decide how I'm going to behave. Freedom for me to decide what's right and wrong. And then you'll hear things like, that's true for you, but not true for me. I I, the sovereign self, will decide what's right and wrong. That might, you might consider that to be right, but it's, it's not necessarily right for me. So the sovereign self wants to have complete, absolute freedom to an autonomy to decide being, believing, and behavior. No longer comes from God. I'm not going to, you know, it's, the, the, it's, it's this attitude, I'm not going to be the victim of someone else's will for my life. And that becomes, I'm not even going to be the victim of God's will for my life. The problem is, it makes you the victim of your own will for your life. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's not only us struggling with the issue of the sovereign self. I mean, like I said, this has been going on forever. Garden of Eden, God tells them one thing, you may eat of all the trees in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do Adam and Eve decide? They decide we want to be like God and we want to decide good and evil, right and wrong for ourselves, so we're going to eat from that tree. We're not going to trust God to tell us what's right and wrong. We're not going to trust God to tell us what's true and not true. We're going to, as the sovereign self, decide for ourselves. So this has been a problem throughout history. You can read the whole Bible. The Bible doesn't hide it. The Bible shows us very clearly the problem of the sovereign self from the beginning of the fall all the way through Israel's history and world history as a, as a whole. That is probably our biggest problem. But the problem is not only that I struggle with this issue of the sovereign self. The problem is that all of us do. So you... You have a whole society of sovereign selves, you know, wanting to rule their own lives. And just like that desire in me as a fallen human being makes me unable to discern God's will, unable to desire God's will, and therefore unable to do God's will, it does the same for everyone else. In fact, in fact, we are not neutral as human beings towards God's will. We are hostile to it. The Bible says so very clearly. We are hostile to God's will. Now, some of you might say, no, that's 
you know, preacherly, hyperbole. You know, you, preachers always overstate things. Not, not, not really. <laughs> this, this time the Bible actually really says so. It says we are hostile to God's will. We are prejudiced to God's will. So internally, I'm prejudiced as a human being. But also externally, there's an external prejudice because all the other human beings around me are also prejudiced against God's will. In fact, it's so bad that if you want to do the will of a sinless God in a sinful world, you will be persecuted. And that's what Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12 says. Just bring up that scripture quickly. Matthew 9, uh, 5, verse 11 and 12. It says, blessed are you when... Notice, it doesn't say blessed are you if others revile you and persecute you for my name's sake. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter uh, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can you see, Jesus guarantees that if you try to do the will of God, if you try to do his will, his sinless will in a sinful world, you will be persecuted. You will experience resistance. You will experience opposition. You will experience slander and lies and all of that. Can you see now why I say God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven, but it can't be done on earth as it is in heaven? It can't. So, what's the solution? Let's go to Matthew 7, verse 21. The the solution the, the Bible gives us to the problem of the sovereign self is radical self denial and unconditional surrender to Jesus as Lord. There's a story I I heard once. um, It was right at the end of, I think, World War II, where they were about to sign the peace peace treaty. um, And the Japanese admiral came onto the U.S. warship, and he came into the, the U.S. admiral's, whatever his quarters were, his bridge or whatever, walked up, and he... He sort of took out his papers and he started saying, okay, these are our conditions of surrender. And the American general, uh, admiral apparently just sort of looked at him and let him finish. And then he got up, he walked over to him and he took those admiral, um, what do you call them, stuff on the badges or whatever they are on, on his shoulder and he ripped them off, both sides, just ripped them off like this. And he said to him, unconditional. Surrender. No negotiation. And, I mean, the the Japanese, they'd lost the war. They didn't, they couldn't really negotiate. And that's what God wants from us. Absolute surrender. Unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. Um, Now, I just want to show you, how can you do that? It's not that easy. If, If you're struggling with the sovereign self, like all of us are, It's not that easy to surrender because you don't want to. You want to rule your own life. You want to decide right and wrong for yourself. You want to decide um, truth and lies for yourself. So let's just go to Matthew 7 verse 21. It says, um, because I think this gives us the key. How? It's fine, Any. You're saying I must do absolute surrender, you know, radical self-denial. That's all very nice and so, but how? How do you do it? That's the part I'm struggling with. Why don't you tell me how? Okay, fine. Jesus tells us how. Yeah. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, you see, it's exactly the same thing. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I... I can't give all the answers here, but I can tell, I'll tell you three things that that verse says to us. It, tell, it shows us two things that will not solve the problem of the sovereign self and one thing that will. One thing, the only thing that will, the key. Okay? So the things that won't solve the problem, notice it says on that day, not, it says not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. Last time we spoke about the kingdom. In order to enter the kingdom then, we must do, you know, in order to enter God's kingdom then, we must do God's will now. That's what it's saying. But notice here are guys who are saying, Lord, Lord. Okay? We're talking about unconditional surrender. We're talking about radical self-denial. Unconditional surrender is I'm surrendering to Jesus as Lord. I'm no longer the Lord of my own life, the sovereign self, but I hand over that lordship to Jesus. Now, here are guys who are saying they making all the right noises. They're coming to Jesus and they're not just saying Lord. They're saying Lord, Lord. Now, if we want to emphasize something in an email or something, we put exclamation marks and maybe we put it in capital letters and maybe even make it bold and underline. They didn't have all of those things in the Bible times. If they wanted to... <laughs> they didn't have word processes and all that kind of stuff. If they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it. So these guys are coming to Jesus and they're not just saying Lord, they're saying Lord, Lord. In other words, they really think they're surrendering to Jesus. They really think they're serious, they're committed. These are not guys who are sort of, you know, now and then once a month or once a year I'll come to church and, you know. These are guys who are, are serious about making Jesus Lord of their lives, or at least they think they are. And you know what? You know what Jesus says to them? Sorry. You, 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 you're trying hard, but the, you are trying hard, but it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Then another thing, it says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Religion and ministry is not going to help us here. The appearance of commitment is not going to help us, but religion and ministry is not going to help us here as either. You see, they thought they were doing all kinds of prophesying and exorcism and miracles. Notice that Jesus never says, yes, you did those things. He never actually affirms it. But... That's not the problem. The problem was, in terms of ministry, they thought they were doing all the right things. And they thought that was going to get them entrance into him. They were being religious. They were doing what Jesus did, what they saw him do. It's not good enough to try and do what Jesus did, because the point is you can't. And the point is religion and ministry is not going to help you. It's not going to earn you your way into heaven. Because even though those guys thought they were doing all these miracles, all these good ministry stuff, and all of those things are good th stuff, prophesying, exorcism, mirac uh, miracles, all of those are good things. 
They thought they were doing these things, but they weren't doing the will of the Father. In, in, others, they were, in some areas of their lives, they were trying to obey, and they thought they were obeying, but in many other areas, they were being disobedient. It's, again, not His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So just the appearance of surrender and, and you know, the, the, the presence of ministry and, and religion is not going to help. What is going to help? The last phrase gives us the clue. It says, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Firstly, just a side note. This is, these are not people who were born again and then backslid. Because Jesus says, I never knew you. He doesn't say, I knew you and then you backslid and now I don't know you anymore. You, you see that. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. And that is the key. That is the key. What is the key to radical self-denial? What is the key to unconditional surrender? What is the key to doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven? Knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. That's the key. That's the ultimate key. Knowing Jesus. Um, I just want to read you a passage. I think actually I have it up there on the screen. Matthew 26. Here Jesus comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knows what the Father's will, the Father in Heaven's will for him is. Is that he must go to the cross. Not an easy will to do. Okay, And he prays and says, going on a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was the cup? It was the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. The cup of the judgment of God that Jesus had to drink, even though he didn't deserve it. He had to drink it. And um, he, he says, Lord, this is not a happy prospect for me. I, I, I don't want to drink this cup. I mean, who can blame him, right? <laughs> who can blame him? God's wrath is so intense and severe that God himself is scared of it. <laughs> Jesus, as God himself, didn't want to drink that cup. You can understand that. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Remember we said back in the Garden of Eden, in perfect conditions... Adam and Eve could have chosen God's will and it would have cost them very little to nothing. And yet, despite the fact that there was hardly any cost involved, they chose against God's will. They didn't say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. They said, Lord, not your will, but my will be done. And now, move from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, in a garden. But this time it's different. In contrast to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, you have Jesus at infinite cost to himself, saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Now, notice it says, Jesus says, I never knew you. Just bring up Matthew 1 verse 25 and those scriptures. Just something I want you to, to notice. It says in Matthew 1 verse 25, But knew her not, that's talking about Joseph and Mary, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, 
and he called his name Jesus. Knew her not? What, what, what is Matthew talking about? That Joseph knew not Mary, did not know Mary. The word there in the Greek is gnosko. It's a euphemism for sexual intercourse, for sexual intimacy. Okay? In Genesis 4, I only have two up there, but there are actually three occurrences in Genesis 4. Uh, it says, Adam knew his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Then the 17 says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word knew is also gnosko. And there are a few other examples like that in Scripture. That's exactly the word that Jesus uses when he says, I never knew you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you're making all the right noises. You're doing some of the right stuff. But you're doing it in your own strength. I never knew you. Jesus is, as it were, presenting, doing God's will as you need intimacy. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I almost want to say, you know, like the sexual intimacy of a husband and wife. That kind of intimacy with me. So that I can impregnate you with God's will before you can give birth to God's will. Does does that make sense? Here's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I'm trying to say, you know, we pray, let your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. But we see it's impossible. In order for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, God had to send a piece of heaven down to earth. He sent his son Jesus as it were as a seed, a new seed that will produce a new harvest. And what we do when we pray, when we really pray, we experience that almost sexual like intimacy. Now, I'm using sex here as a metaphor, okay? I'm not. Um, you, but you understand what I'm saying? Sexual like intimacy with Jesus during which we are impregnated with heaven in order to produce heaven on earth. The, the, the will, the obedience of heaven on earth. And that's the only way it can be done. All those who end up not doing God's will on earth as it is done in heaven are those to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. That's the problem. I never knew you. I never knew you. And not only that, um, Jesus, Jesus, in other words, wants this process of intimacy in which he, in a sense, impregnates us with God, God's will so that we can give birth to it. In other words, what he's saying, in a sense, is that we cannot give birth to God's will apart from him as our spiritual husband any more than a wife can get pregnant and give birth to a baby without a man. Now, some of you are saying, ah, but what about artificial insemination? Well, the seed still has to come from somewhere, right? There's still a man involved, (laughs) right? My point is, just like a woman cannot give birth by herself to a child, so we cannot give birth by ourselves to God's will. 
We need Jesus. We need not only to know him, but to be known by him. We need that intimacy. We need that, in a sense, impregnation with his will. And here, I just want to cut to the chase and say, in a sense, the, the, the seed with which we are impregnated is the Holy Spirit. I'm talking metaphorically. The Holy Spirit is what Jesus is whom Jesus puts inside of us that makes us pregnant with the will of God and with the purposes of God and makes us able to, in a sense, give birth to them. And that's the only way. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's the only way it's going to happen. Now, prayer is a big part of this process of intimacy. A big part. And that's why we pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it, we're saying, Lord, I want to experience that intimacy with you. I want you, you to impregnate me with your will so that I can, as it were, give birth to your will. I'm not going to try and do this in my own strength. In fact, I know from Scripture and from experience that I can't. I can't consistently, fully, joyfully, etc., etc., do your will in my own strength. I need you. To impregnate me, as it were, with your will. Now, here's the thing. We also, in this prayer, that our Father pray, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, that our Father is intended to be a daily prayer. Right? If you pray, give us this day our daily bread, it implies it's a prayer that you must daily pray. Which means, Jesus expects us to daily pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because we daily need that intimacy during which, in a sense, Jesus impregnates us with the Father's will in order to live the Father's will. We need that, that intimacy is not something we need from time to time. It's something we need all the time, daily, every day. So when we pray this prayer, you know, it's, it's, it's almost no wonder Jesus says, go into your inner room. It's something very intimate in a sense, that you're going to do. That prayer is that intimacy with Jesus. Go into your inner room, lock the door, experience that intimacy during prayer with me. And then you can live God's will. I just want the ushers to quickly hand out the elements of the communion. And while they're doing this, I want you to think of one last thing before we have communion. I want you to think of this. Every time we do God's will, there is a cost involved. There is a sacrifice that we have to make. Definitely there is. But think about this. Jesus will never ask us require us to pay a cost that is higher than the cost that he's already paid for us. When he said, Lord, if it's at all possible, let this cup, this cup of your wrath pass me by. And then said, Lord, yet not my will, but your will be done. He was making, he was paying a higher cost than we will ever have to pay. I mean, the cost, any cost that we have to pay to obey God's will 
will pale in comparison to the cost that Jesus has already paid. Any sacrifice that we have to make to obey God's will will pale in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus has already made for us. Jesus will never ask us to sacrifice more than he has already sacrificed for us. He'll never ask of us to sacrifice more than he's already sacrificed for us. And that's what communion is all about. Communion is a reminder to us how much Jesus has sacrificed for us. And let us look at the elements portraying the cost at which Jesus did the will of the Father for us and be inspired to do the will of the Father ourselves. You see, Jesus doing the will of the Father there and and praying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, does two things for us. Number one, it inspires us to follow his example in a smaller way. He made a big sacrifice so we can make small sacrifices to do the will of the Father. But secondly, it also takes care of the fact that very often, even when we discern God's will and desire God's will, we don't always do God's will. In other words, we fail, we sin. But Jesus' sacrifice takes care of it. The fact that Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, takes care of the problem that even when we pray, your will be done, we don't always do it. Because there's grace and there's forgiveness. One day in, in... at the consummation of everything, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that's not yet fully true. The consummation of all things has not yet fully happened. But already we can start doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe not perfectly. But if we allow Christ to know us, in inverted commas, we can now already start doing the will of the Father on earth as in heaven. Has anyone got um, bread and wine? Let's take the bread. Jesus, we remind ourselves that this bread that is broken, that is, as it were, bruised with blotches on it, that is pierced with holes in it, that it, this represents your body that has been broken, bruised, and pierced for us because we, can't, we could not and we cannot always fully do your will. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid this price for us. Thank you that through your death, you inspire us by showing us the extent to which you were willing to go to do the Father's will. Please help us to follow your example in that sense. Let's eat together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this cup which represents your blood, the blood of the new covenant that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that You are the key, and because of you, even when we do fail to do the will of the Father, 
you make a way for us to still call him father and be his children thank you for that Jesus thank you that your blood washes away our sins all of the times we have not fully done your will or consistently done your will or joyfully done your will or willingly intentionally done your will all of those times that we failed to do your will on earth as it is done in heaven Lord we repent of that we're sorry Lord and we ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us with your blood in Jesus name let's drink together as you're sitting there I just want you to close your eyes and I want you to do just one thing say Lord Jesus I I want the kind of prayer life in which I can be daily known by you I want the kind of prayer life in which I can be daily known by you that impregnating intimacy I want to experience that daily Lord just in your own words like this we see what he's done for us how beautiful he is how wonderful he is then we'll want to rush into our inner room and experience that intimacy with him we'll want to because he'll be our hero he'll be our husband as it were he'll be our lord lord jesus I want to, along with every other person here, ask you for that kind of prayer life, Lord. Where we can experience that impregnating intimacy through your Holy Spirit. That enables us, despite ourselves, despite our humanness, despite our fallenness, despite our weakness, to do your will on earth as it is done in heaven. And we pray that as that happens as we as it were give birth to your will on earth that it will that that we'll be able to rejoice in our greatest good and your greatest glory in Jesus name amen thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg may the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jarberg.com.